Hello, it's Wednesday 30th of March. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowman and I are delighted to vicariously visit a country we don't talk about too often, Myanmar, in the company of Yangon-based Argus Tuft. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today we are delighted to be joined by Argus Tuft, who is a longtime resident of Myanmar and an experienced operator across the aviation, travel and marine sectors. And he also made TV documentaries in Australia. Argus is currently working as an independent consultant in Yangon, advising local and overseas nationals and expat residents on returning to or leaving Myanmar as international flights have not up until now been operating for the past two years. We should point out that he is talking to us today under a pseudonym given the current political situation. So Argus, many thanks for joining us on the show today. How are you doing and how are things in Yangon right now? Good afternoon, Gary, and good afternoon, Hannah, and thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm doing very well, um, as well as can be expected. Uh, We've sort of hit a status quo here uh, in Myanmar. there's a, a few challenges uh, which, which I'll tell you about uh, this afternoon in terms of electricity and, and other restrictions. Uh, but life is, is actually going on as normal uh, in Yangon and around Myanmar. People are trying to get back to normal. Great. So we're really looking forward to cracking into some of that. But let's start by going back a little bit. Let, tell us a little bit more about your, your background. You, you grew up and you studied in Australia. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, I was born in Western Australia. Um, I spent a bit of time in, in Rhodesia when I was younger. My, my father uh, was a doctor in Southern Africa, but uh, for myself, uh, my schooling uh, was in Australia, in Western Australia. So you've posted online that your parents travelled around Southeast Asia in the 70s. Was that a big influence on you? Uh, indeed. Um, since I was very young, I've, I've always uh, had the travel bug, even when I wasn't taken away on these trips with my parents when they used to go for their little holiday breaks. And I go... Um, for the, the, the mid to late 70s, uh, Southeast Asia was still a bit, a bit of a sort of a, a frontier and wild place for, uh, you know, for Western, uh, Western uh, travellers to visit, you know, going to, to Hong Kong and, and a trip out to the new territories or across the border uh, to Canton as it was then was quite an adventure. And I used to love listening uh, to their stories whenever they came back. And at what point did you realise that travel and tourism would be both, you know, a personal passion of yours, but also a career? Oh, from a very young age, uh, one of my earliest memories was uh, flying from Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, of course, and South Africa, where we were visiting family, uh, back to Perth on a South African Airways 747. So immediately I had the aviation bug. Uh, you know, if, if a plane flew overhead, I, I was eyes up at the sky. And, and then I guess uh, the travel bug rub, rubbed off onto me from my parents uh, and, you know, uh, experiences as a child moving around Western Australia, uh, over in Rhodesia. Uh, and then, of course, my, my travelling uh, life in my adult life, uh, it, it really took off. And I've been very, very fortunate uh, to have lived, worked and travelled to some, some really interesting places. So you've done numerous things, and we'll we'll come to some of those right now. Um, one of the perhaps most interesting things that we I don't think we've ever talked about on the show is that you co-founded uh, Super Yacht News, and you're a Super Yacht fan. You you know a huge amount about the industry, how it's developed over recent years. Obviously, there was quite strong growth with that uh, particular industry over the last decade or so. Tell us a little bit about your experiences with Super Yachts, and 
And I know that you've actually spent some time here in Malaysia trekking down one or two quite famous uh, yachts. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. Um, the super yachts, uh, my involvement in super yachts uh, stems from a long friendship uh, with a, a British expat, two British brothers actually, uh, who in the late 90s, they actually pioneered or lobbied the, the then military government to open up the southern border of Myanmar and allow access to, to private yachts uh, for some limited tourism into the Mergui Archipelago, uh, which is somewhere I would end up uh, later uh, later going to do something else. But um, they they formed SEAL super yachts, which evolved from liverboards into hosting uh, some of the largest privately owned yachts in the world. I sort of reconnected with Adam uh, in 2012, and then spent uh, about six or seven years working with him on the operations side. So when these super yachts, you know, they, you generally see them in on photos and, and, and TV, they're in the Mediterranean at Monaco and Monte Carlo. And in the winter, European winter, they will then choose either to turn right and go over to the Caribbean, or they'll turn left, come through the Suez and, and spend the winter months in Southeast Asia. So it's been a growing industry in Southeast Asia. And generally, they arrive uh, to Phuket. And from there, they can do trips down to Langkawi in Malaysia or north into the Mergui Archipelago in Myanmar. And what's the current situation? I mean, we, we read quite a lot about these in recent months simply because of what's happening in Russia and the oligarchs and the, the seizing of some of their yachts. But what's the actual super yacht situation currently in Southeast Asia? It's been very much in limbo uh, since early 2020 uh, with the COVID shutdown on tourism. That, that didn't just affect uh, uh, aviation and, and airline travel. Um, that did affect uh, the movement of super yachts as well. So I think it was a very quiet 2021 season. But with countries gradually reopening, uh, you will see them starting to come back and pick up in numbers. Uh, in Phuket, Thailand at the moment, there's been a few there for the current season, which will end next month. Uh, and the Thailand government uh, and a few other governments around Southeast Asia have been uh, quick to announce that they will relax uh, entry requirements for super yachts, uh, super yachts and their, their crews and guests and have started to do that. So let's get back to you then and Myanmar. So you've lived in Myanmar since um, 1999. And, you know, I'm sure that you have seen many, many changes and much development during that time. But what brought you to Myanmar in the first place? Because I've heard it's a pretty good story. Yeah, it's it's not your usual uh, sort of avenue to arrive as an expat in a, in a country that was very much closed up until, until the late 90s uh, and then sort of opened up even further in, in 2012. Um, I actually spent a, a couple of years working in Australia on, on pearl farms. So I took a a summer job. I needed some uni, uh, university study money and some money for my flying lessons. And I took a summer job in Australia working on a pearl farm. Uh, and it was there I was, I was taught how to dive and taught about the technical side uh, and ended up having a, a, a bit of a talent for it. So I did that in Australia for two years. Uh, then I was invited to go to the Philippines to work for a Japanese a company there doing uh, pearl oyster seeding. Uh, and then I was back in Australia for about a year, and in early 1999, uh, I got tapped to come up to Myanmar as they were uh, developing a, a new joint venture pearl farm because Myanmar had decided to reopen their pearling industry, which had been closed off since the early 60s. You mentioned there about the opening of Myanmar in 2020, 2010, 2011. I can't remember. The first time I remember I went was in 2011. And then that really sort of brought over the next decade the modern tourism industry to, to the country. And there were considerable changes uh, throughout the 2010s. 
How did you experience the development of travel and tourism during that time? And, and did it bring benefits to the country? Yeah, that was a very interesting time. Um, I had a couple of years away and arrived back in early 2012. And the country really was uh, opening up uh, in, in more than one meaning of the, of the expression. In the first couple of years, uh, there was a, a sudden influx of people arriving here, and not just tourists, but to NGOs and businesses, because they saw uh, Myanmar as a country of opportunity. But of course, all of these sectors were competing for very limited accommodation and room space. Even a, a dormitory and a backpackers, which cost $10 a few years before, uh, would have cost $40, $50 a night in 2012 onwards. So there was a mad scramble uh, to open up uh, new properties, convert condominiums into hotels, because the price of hotel rooms was absolutely phenomenal for about 2012 to 2015. Yeah, I remember that time. The, the first time I came in 2011, I remember, as you said, you know, there, there wasn't a great deal of hotel accommodation and demand was increasing. But there were also challenges. You know, it, it was really old school traveling. But it, you know, it, there were no ATMs. You had to change money in, in the public squares. It, it, it really felt like uh, a country emerging into a tourism industry uh, about which you know, huge changes needed to be made and huge investments did come in, didn't they, over the next few years? Absolutely. And, you know, from grassroot, uh, grassroot level tourism, obviously uh, local operators not sort of tied to any previous military government, uh, to big multinationals like uh, a core hotels coming in, uh, you know, opening a Novotel uh, arrival of, of Lotte, Melia. Uh, there was changes right across the, the, the broad tourism industry. And you're very right, it was still... Uh, a bit, a bit uh, quirky and, and quaint in those early years, uh, changing money, no ATMs, and a lot of uh, travellers did struggle. But um, a lot of them, I guess, in, enjoyed the adventure. But there was always a lot of stories of, of frustration uh, in those early couple of years of reopening. I'm sure. I mean, so what kind of benefits did you see um, tourism, you know, this nascent tourism industry, bringing um, to the country? A lot more money to uh, your sort of mom and pop or mum and dad level of, of tourism, cottage industry tourism. Uh, so the development of more facilities at that sort of end, uh, a, a break from this very strict uh, regime requirement of, of following and tracking tourists and their every move, there was uh, a lot more relaxation. And so the benefits uh, meant that the, the, the people of Myanmar were able to open up and really sort of showcase the country uh, a lot more. I mean, and not just in Yangon, um, but outside as well. Myanmar is the largest conti contiguous landmass country of, of ASEAN or Southeast Asia. Uh, and there is a, a, a wide variety of, of destinations and environments uh, from right up north at the foothills of the Himalayas, uh, through the plains in the, in the middle of the country, the temples of Bagan, uh, the Aawadi River with, with cruise boats going up and down between Bagan, Mandalay and Yangon. Uh, right down to the Mergui Archipelago, uh, where I lived when I first was here, which was 800, uh, you know, more or less pristine islands, uh, and that opened up uh, diving, uh, diving businesses and, and, and liverboards and uh, tourists on boats visiting small villages. Uh, so yeah, a lot more engagement uh, on all levels uh, of the Myanmar population. Yeah, it's a lovely summary. I mean, it's a remarkable country. It's one of my favorite countries I've ever visited. And, and one of the things that I find so fascinating about it, and you really get this feeling in Yangon, is it's really at the intersection of where Southeast Asia meets South Asia. Would you agree with that? 
Absolutely. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of the local Burmese cuisine. And if you're ever asked how to describe that, it's not Thai, it's not Chinese, it's not Indian, but there's definitely um, the Indian influences. Um, a few of the Thai spices, a lot of a mix of Chinese as well. It's a very oily food. People uh, who visit here for the first time often say, why is my, my curry uh, swimming in oil? And it's actually a throw over from the, the lack of, of, of power and refrigeration. Oil was a great preserver. Although there's a, a, an evolution in local Burmese cuisine, it still hasn't quite got away that heavy use of oil. Um, but yeah, I'm also a big fan of Indian food, uh, which is one of the reasons I love coming to Malaysia. I love my Malay and, and Indian foods. And uh, yeah, Myanmar is definitely at the crossroads of cuisine, as you said. And so just before we move on to what's happened in recent years, let's, let's bring it up to date just before the pandemic struck. My last visit to Yangon was in late November 2019. I was there for almost a week, just before the pandemic, of course. And I was struck by how many Asian tourists were crowding the downtown cafes and the rooftop bars. It got quite trendy at that point. Travelers, especially from China, from Japan, from Korea and Singapore. Was that something that you were noticing living there? Uh, absolutely. Uh, in sort of uh, early 2000s, there was um, not a lot of foreign uh, independent travellers here, and it was mostly European and, and, and Western tourists, and the numbers were very low. I don't think they ever go over uh, 150,000 to 200,000 per year towards the, the late 2000s. Uh, in the last decade, from sort of 2012 up to pre-COVID, I mean, I don't have figures on, on, on this, but I know that uh, the, the biggest growing demographic were, was definitely from uh, Southeast Asia and East Asia uh, in terms of the, the numbers and the makeup of tourists coming to Myanmar. That's super interesting. So, of course, let's bring it right up to, uh, well, up to 2020. And of course, COVID hits uh, Myanmar just as hard as anywhere else um, in the world. What did you see the impact was of that on the tourism industry? Uh, I, mean, I mean, like most other countries uh, in the world and in the region, an immediate stop. Um, so a little bit of trivia for you. Uh, two years ago, uh, yesterday, the Department of Civil Aviation uh, in Yangon put out a circular. And on the 30th of March 2020, uh, an unprecedented um, stop of all commercial international passenger flights uh, so that is it's exactly two years ago today. I'm actually looking at, at that DCA circular in front of me, um, <laughs> which is just a good bit of trivia for you. And an instant stop. And, and I guess it was fast forward to August of 2020. And that was only the fifth relief flight from Bangkok to Yangon. So between the end of March 2020 and August 2020, there had only been five relief flights so a, a total stop on tourists, uh, a total stop on the issuing of tourist visas and a total ban on international commercial passenger flights. So it must have been really one of the most closed off countries. I mean, certainly in Southeast Asia, I think, in that respect, right? Uh, very much so. Um, and it became even more closed off last year, which I, I think we'll probably get into in a, in a little while. Um, but I mean... Myanmar has always been very good at, at closing the borders when there's any sort of uh, political or uh, unrest or issue here. And COVID just played uh, right into the bureaucrats' hands. Having said that, the Ministry of Health and Sport here, MOHS, I, I thought they did a marvellous job in, in 
uh, tracking and uh, and taking care of and, and informing uh, the citizens here. I mean, as a resident expat who was concerned as anybody else, um, I thought that MOHS Myanmar did an absolutely sterling job of keeping us all up to date when there were so many questions and uncertainty in the in the early months of 2020. So then 2020, going into early 2021, um, was domestic tourism starting to pick up? I mean, obviously, borders were still very much closed. There are no international flights. But did domestic tourism start to at least happen? I mean, prior um, to the coup? It did. There was a... Uh, we measured the we, we call it the the COVID waves. First wave was um, end of March 2020. Um, there was another wave later that year. But in between these COVID waves, uh, obviously, when there were relaxations on on you know dining and shopping restrictions, there was uh, some attempts to sort of get back to some normality of domestic tourism. Uh, for example, the the cruise boats that, that ply the the upper Irrawaddy between Bagan and Mandalay, uh, they re- relocated back to to Myanmar and the one so back to Yangon and the ones that didn't uh, cease operations offered things like uh, day and overnight cruises. Uh, hotel staycations has been a, a huge thing uh, for local Myanmar and, and, and expats here. Uh, once the hotels were allowed to to open and remove things like plastic screens. So there was an attempt, um, and I think that was beginning to move up a bit in, in uh, January 2021. Um, but then, of course, the, the next news happened. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that. We'll talk about the impacts in a moment. But of course, the 1st of February 2021, the military coup took place. The, the central tenet of that was, was in Yangon, where you are. Was there any indication that this was going to happen? And, and, and what was the immediate effect on people's lives? There, there were some indications. Um, the military, which has uh, since the changes to the constitution, has held a quarter uh, of seats, compulsorily held a quarter of seats in parliament. They had complained about the, the election held in November 2020. Uh, there were a few of the, the foreign embassies that made some statements uh, urging the, the military to, to accept the, uh, the results of the coup, which was a, an overwhelming uh, victory to the NLD. Um, but nobody, Gary, expected what happened on the morning of the 1st of February, uh, and it took us all by surprise. We, we woke up to a total radio, uh, television and internet blackout. I mean, it was textbook military coup. Yeah, I, I just can't imagine it. I mean, and as a business owner then, how on earth do you start to make plans in this kind of environment? Or do you just give up on business planning at all? Does that go out of the window? Business planning does go out of the window and across every sector, not just uh, tourism. Um, there was a lot of businesses closed down uh, after the coup because obviously it escalated into protests and then violence. Um, and then, of course, we had the third wave of COVID that came in July, uh, which really shut the country down again. But for these businesses following the coup on the 1st of February, let's say there was a two or three month period where nobody could plan everything. Uh, There was large-scale protests for about six weeks, uh, and then the the military came in uh, to to quell those protests, and life virtually stopped. It went from uh, protests and being active on the street, and and literally millions of people on the street, um, to uh, clashes with the police, and then a full uh, army crackdown a little bit later on. uh, And by April uh, and May of 2021, it was eerily quiet in the streets of Yangon, and I would say 90% of business was shuttered. 
So 14 months on, we still read a lot of what's happening around the country, but we read less, uh, I would say, outside the country of what's actually happening in Yangon. What's daily life like there right now? Uh, daily life, Gary, is actually back to normal. We're back to the usual traffic levels we, we had in 2019, constant traffic jams and the beeping of horns. Shops and restaurants are, are reopened again as the COVID restrictions have eased. Um, the security forces presence is a little bit more uh, subtle now. There's one uh, disclaimer to that, though. We have rolling electricity cuts across the city 12 to 16 hours a day in Yangon, and that's having a, an effect on daily life. People want to get out. They want to go shopping. They want to go to their office. Uh, but to give you an example of one of the effects of these rolling blackouts, all of the major intersection traffic lights are out, and that exacerbates the traffic jams. So I actually, I had to leave the office a little bit early to, to get back to, to my home uh, to join you and Hannah for this because I knew I was going to get stopped for about 10 minutes simply because one set of traffic lights was out. And it's absolute gridlock. Oh my gosh, I hadn't even, I hadn't even thought about that affecting traffic, but you're right. And in fact, we even had to plan the timing of this, this uh, podcast recording very carefully, didn't we, to make sure that you actually had electricity um, to be able to do it. Um, Kind of unthinkable sat here in Malaysia with our electricity and everything at a, a light switch away. Um, so how about the vaccination rollout? Um, I really know quite little about where Myanmar is with that as well. Can you talk us through that? It's, it is very low in the terms of, um, in the terms of percentage compared to uh, other countries in ASEAN. In fact, your, your weekly dashboard has, has been a, a great help um, because we don't always get very accurate information here. I think it's, in fact, Hannah, you'll know better. I think we're in the mid to high 30% now, um, and I know it is growing. Uh, three weeks ago, the Thai government delivered half a million uh, vaccines on a special Thai Airways flight, which was handed over at Yangon International Airport. Uh, the Chinese are still sending in vaccines. Uh, I myself finally just got my second Moderna vaccine uh, only two weeks ago. I only got my first Moderna vaccine in, uh, I think it was November. So it, it has been, I guess, one of the slowest countries in the region uh, to roll out and, and catch up with uh, vaccinations. And we're nowhere near a high percentage of double vaccinations yet. You mentioned there the rolling electricity blackouts. What's the reason behind that? Is that is that an economic reason? And is that spilling over into other things? You mentioned that you know the traffic is gridlocked. What about petrol? You know, are the petrol pumps full? How is it impacting other parts of, of life? Uh, the reasons for it um, at this time of year, we always get some kind of uh, rolling blackouts. But this is bad for one reason. There's a, a natural gas pipeline up in the north of the country, uh, which has come into some some issues and. Uh, the, the Ministry of Electricity has talked about repairs going on. The other thing is this is the peak of summer for us and uh, Myanmar relies a lot on, on hydroelectricity, uh, which comes from dams and uh, you know, full rivers in the north. Now, we won't get our rains uh, up in the north of Myanmar until at least sort of early to mid-May. Uh, so we've been advised that these uh, severe blackouts uh, are going to continue for the next two months. Uh, and yes, it, it, it is having a role on effect. Inflation has been very high here, Gary, even since before the blackout started. Um, in, in fact, inflation on, on, on all sorts of everyday goods, groceries, petrol, 
uh, is, has been rampant, sort of 60, 70 percent uh, in a lot of cases. And we can see that at the, the petrol pump. So anybody who drives here today on, on our local uh, expat uh, signal group, uh, we, we, we always share information on currency rates, the petrol prices, etc. So it is having an effect. Uh, but the electricity itself, mainly caused by this gas pipeline breakdown, but it's exacerbated by the fact that it's the time of the year when uh, we can't rely on hydroelectricity. Now, in recent days, there's speculation has been growing that Myanmar is going to reopen to tourists in April. And certainly it was all over the, the headlines a couple of weeks ago to the extent that I had to message you, didn't I, to ask whether it was really true that Myanmar was really reopening because um, I, I knew that you would know. So is that really the case? Uh, I was really happy when you messaged me the other night to ask. Uh, and my reply is the same. Hannah, not really. There has been some announcements from Napidor uh, and various ministries uh, about, well, the first announcement uh, a week or so ago was the uh, resumption of regular commercial international flights. And that will happen on New Year's Day. So there's obviously some thought about the timing of that. Now, we've been on relief flights since March 2020, which means that only certain airlines can have permission to fly in. Um, and these are they are scheduled and they are pseudo commercial flights, but not all airlines have been allowed to fly in. So international flights are allowed to recommence from the 17th of April. And the notice that accompanied that said, uh, with a view to, uh, to promoting tourism in Myanmar. But in reality, not really. And I've actually got uh, some news in in the last hour while I was on my way back here. So the Ministry of Immigration and Population had run a very successful online e-visa site starting in 2014. And it was seamless. It worked. It was so much better than, I mean, a lot of neighbouring countries should take a leaf out of the, the way this website was set up. I used to do my own business visas online, have it turned around in a couple of hours, turn up at the airport and get on the plane. Now, all visa issuing has been suspended since uh, the 20th of March 2020. They announced last week that they would restart the online e-visa at midnight on the 31st of March. So that's uh, tomorrow at the time of, of uh, our recording this, but only for business visas. Now, I actually just came from a meeting uh, with the manager of the e-visa website, a private company called EaseNet Myanmar, uh, Raymond Jha, and uh, he's happy for me to pass on uh, the discussions he's had with Napidor. They still do not have advice as to if and when tourist visas will be reissued. So, Hannah, to answer that question, although business visas are restarting, uh, we still don't have an answer as to whether uh, tourist visas uh, will start. It's expected sometime later in April, possibly May. But I have a feeling that the military government in Napidor wants to vet the, uh, the return to business visa issuing first to see if they've got uh, enough of uh, a control on who's coming in and out. Yeah, you made a very good point there about the e-visa system. I used that in 2019 to get in and out of the country, and I agree with you. I mean, it, was, it worked absolutely seamlessly. It was very, very quick. It was very, very fast. Uh, and it, it was as soon as I arrived in Myanmar, there was no problem uh, with my visa. It, I was just waved straight through. Um, I guess it goes without saying, Argus, that we have to accept that what's happened in the country over the past two years, not just COVID, but also the political situation, 
that the tourism industry must have been absolutely devastated. What is the exact current situation of, of travel and tourism in, in Myanmar? Uh, it's very non-existent um, at the moment. Okay, there is some uh, local domestic uh, tourism, both with Myanmar uh, nationals, mostly Myanmar nationals, and the few expats that are here, uh, but very low, as I uh, mentioned earlier, Staycation, uh, staycation hotel stays around Yangon have been very popular. Uh, I met the other night with uh, Tim Boomer. Now, he's the Sanctuary Ananda uh, Country Director for Myanmar. They've got an Abercrombie and Kent uh, affiliated cruise boat, I mean, a very high-end cruise boat, uh, which is berthed up in Mandalay. He is just now restarting uh, two and three night sailing packages, uh, including a flight from Yangon up to Mandalay and then everything included on the boat. So he is cautiously optimistic, but he knows he has to work from a domestic market first. Uh, the other reopenings are Napoli Beach in Rakhine State. There's some high-end hotels, mid and high-end hotels there. People are starting to take two or three day or week long vacations there. And then the other mainly accessible tourist destination from Yangon, a five or six hour drive, is Sound Beach on the Irrawaddy coast. Uh, and there's hotels there that have reopened and there are people getting away and uh, and visiting there. So you, you mentioned that, you know, that they, they were cautiously optimistic. Um, is that the general consensus um, amongst tour operators about the potential of international tourists visiting Myanmar? Yes, I think so, Hannah. Um, talking to a couple of the stakeholders in the last couple of days, uh, so I could get a better idea from, from, from their perspective, knowing that I was going to talk with you and Gary, they are not holding their breath on a sudden return of, of foreign visitors flying into Myanmar. They, they know that's going to be rolled out slowly, so they're not going to rely on that for the first few months. They're going to con- concentrate on the, on the domestic market first. They they do not see anything getting back to normal in the next three to six months. And of course, we are heading into the rainy season here. We'll be in monsoon uh, late April or early May. So that's generally five or six months of, of low season here, historically anyway. And so in terms of the country itself and what it offers to, to tourists, as you mentioned, it's a huge country. It's a very, very diverse geographical country. It's beautiful, stunning. A lot of people will know Yangon, they'll know Bagon, they'll know some of the lakes as well. Uh, you've traveled a lot around the country. What, what are some of your own favorite places? Oh, where do I start? Um, look, I have a, a soft spot for the Mergui Archipelago, um, probably because it was the place I, I lived for the better part of a decade. But I mean, there's 800 islands, some stunning beaches um, following the, the reopening of Myanmar from 2012 onwards. There's a number of, of, of very nice resorts that have opened on, on certain islands. Uh, the diving uh, is very pristine and it's a lovely place uh, to spend a, a week or a few days on a beach or on a boat. Bagan, of course, Gary, I think you must have been up there. It is stunning. You know, there's nothing beats uh, doing the balloons over Bagan at, at sunrise, you know, over the thousands of, of temples there at dawn. I'm just trying to think of what other places... One little gem that, uh, again, from my reading of travel books when I was much younger, I read in a, in a 
early Paul Thoreau novel called The Great Railway Bazaar that uh, he had visited here in 73 or 74 and managed to get up to what was then called Maimyo, it's now called Pinulwin, up in the Shan State Mountains. And he was determined to go on a train trip to Lashio, crossing a, a famous 180-year-old uh, steel bridge called the Goktake Viaduct. That, I think, is one of my little hidden gems in this country. I love that. Top tips. Yeah, I mean, I have never had the chance to to make it to Myanmar yet, um, but it is certainly on, on the on the list of places to visit. And that hot air balloon yeah. over Bagan, yes, that's <laughs> on the bucket list. So thank you so much, Argus, uh, for coming on the show. And, you, you know, you are always uh, my my source of information that I always turn to um, when I I need to know anything about Myanmar because it's so difficult from the outside to find out actually what's really going on on the ground, which I think also led to why so many of these news articles were suddenly all um, insisting that Myanmar was opening up to tourists just because there's such little uh, kind of clarity on the ground. But you are our, our, our man on the ground there. Um, so thank you so much for... Um, you know, for, for sharing what's going on with Myanmar now and, and about your history. I, I think everybody will find it really fascinating. We hope our listeners also enjoy the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah, many thanks to Argus. It's been a fantastic show, a really, really deep dive into uh, such a fantastic and wonderful country. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every episode, including this one, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each one. And please remember that if you do tune in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, which together account for around 60% of our total listeners, please give us a quick rating and a review, as that helps other people to find the show. That's a wrap for today. We'll be taking a break next week, but then we'll be back to talk more travel and tourism with you in Southeast Asia. We look forward to seeing you then. Thank you.